Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us. Uh, You might remember that last week I responded to a podcast episode, two podcast episodes, where William Lane Craig responded to me in which I, I I wrote – he was responding to a blog post that I wrote responding to him in his Defenders <laughs> class that he wrote res- <laughs> responding to John Walton's The Lost World of Genesis 1. And I, I don't think that Craig really, um, really refuted the Cosmic Temple inauguration view. But today I have my guest – Michael Jones, you know him for, as Inspiring Philosophy. He puts up a lot of great apologetic and theology YouTube videos, and he asked me if he wanted if I wanted him to come on to let him give his thoughts, because if you've seen his video series on Genesis, you know that he also holds to this functional origins cosmic temple view, like I do, and like Walton does, and he's here today to tell us what he thinks about Craig's argument. So, hello, Mike. How you doing? Good. How you doing? Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for coming on. So, first off, uh, the first ob- I want to get right into the first objection that Craig brings up. He, he starts his podcast out by describing the Cosmic Temple inauguration view, and he says, quote, The cosmic temple view is Walton's thesis that God has created the universe as a sort of cosmic temple in which he can rest or dwell or reside. This is supposed to be on the model of the pagan deities of the ancient Near East, which were thought to reside in temples. Since God cannot be contained in any physical building, the notion here is that Genesis 1 is teaching that that the whole world, the whole universe, is God's cosmic temple, in which he comes to dwell. Walton interprets God's resting on the seventh day, the the day of the Sabbath later, as God's coming to reside in his cosmic temple, end quote. Uh, I was mistaken. This is not uh, an objection. This is just a description. But, But would you agree that this is more or less an accurate summary of Walton's thesis? In last week's podcast, I said that I thought so, albeit I might rephrase a sentence or two differently than Dr. Craig did. Yeah, I, I would agree that he doesn't do a bad job of representing kind the overview of Walton's view. I don't think he does a pretty good job beyond that uh, representing Walton's arguments for it correctly. Uh, I, I've I've had to uh, so I, I have a lot of respect for Dr. Craig if he ever listens to this. Uh, he's very intelligent. It just seems like when it comes to this view, he's not put a lot of stock into it. Uh, it's kind of disappointing because I've I've responded to some of his arguments. On various hangouts before because it always comes up christians are always bringing up craig's objections to walton's and I, when i first heard them i was like really that's it like come on there's gotta be more <laughs> so it's unfortunate i say <laughs> yeah and, that, and that's the reason why i wrote those two blog posts and did uh podcasts that kind of 
you know, go with the blog post. I was kind of talking about the same stuff because for that exact same reason, like William Lane Craig, he's such a huge name in apologetics and he responded to Walton's view. And every time I bring it up, people are just like, well, William Lane Craig responded to that and they sent me links to his Defenders podcast. And I'm like, you know, I need to respond to this. Um, I know. Yeah, but it's it's like Pete and they pretend like he just utterly refuted Walton. And I'm like, how do you see that? Like, I'm confused. Yeah. Uh, But I also I thought I would do it since uh, during I did like a really intense study of Genesis one and particularly Walton's view and what his critics have to say. And I just thought, you know, while I'm reading these articles and uh, and papers and disagreeing with them, why don't I blog about it? You know? Might just uh, might be a good thing to just put up there. So I have the, had this really long series, uh, both in the pod, on the podcast here and on the blog about Genesis one, and I'm sure people are getting sick of hearing me talking about <laughs> talk about. Well, I it. mean, I mean, I would also add to be fair. I mean, I when I first read Walton's book, I thought it was a very interesting view, but I thought it was in it was incomplete. Like, I think one of the deficiencies of Walton uh, when he defended his view is that he discounted a lot of arguments that i use to defend the view and the three arguments he doesn't use which i wish which i think actually makes his view stronger is arguing for the dependent clause structure of genesis 1 uh emphasizing on the correlations to jeremiah 4 23 to 26 and also noting the implicit polemics against pagan deities in genesis 1 and walton uh, rejects two of those arguments he he notes jeremiah 4 a little bit but he doesn't put a lot of emphasis on it and I think if he if you adopt those three arguments that I've also put forward, it actually makes Walton's view a lot stronger. And so uh, Craig hasn't addressed those. And to be fair, it's because Walton didn't make the arguments. But I think if you take Walton's arguments in con- in conjunction with these other arguments, it makes his view a lot stronger. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, and I think I think that whole polemical thing is talked about in the book. In the beginning, we misunderstood, which I haven't read yet, but I really want to. And the way I see it is, yeah. You know, there is, I think Walton did make a false dichotomy. It's it's not that it's it's Moses isn't just saying God assigned functions to everything that exists and he's inaugurating his cosmic temple, but he's also taking jabs at the pagan creation myths at the same time that he's doing that. And here's the way I think: what would be the ultimate polemic against the pagan gods? Would it would be to say that the entire cosmos is God's temple? Well, I mean, think think about it. Reading that account to uh, a Canaanite or so, someone who worships Baal or or Molech, you would ba- they would basically be hearing, "Oh, your God has a little human-made temple. Uh, you had to build it for him." But our God, Yahweh, he has the entire cosmos as his temple, and he made it himself. So, huh? Yeah, exactly. And I think the the polemics are pretty. Uh, not they're not obviously not obvious, but they're implicitly there. And it's hard to deny once you start reading some of the other creation myths or things like the uh, Numa Elish uh, or something like the Atrahasis. Yeah, and I think, and I think that I think this is like the t- the whole. T- I'm not sure because I haven't read the book, but based on the description on Amazon, it sounds like this is what Brian Gadawa's book "God Against the Gods" lowercase G is about. Is about this whole how the the biblical authors frequently took. Uh, pagan elements and said, oh, you know, oh, you think Baal's the cloud rider? No, Yahweh is. He's the one who rides the clouds and all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And if, it's interesting if you read some very liberal scholars, like I've been reading Sean Flynn or James Anderson or Mark S. Smith lately, a lot of them get kind of like, 
they'll argue that you know Yahweh was originally a sun deity, and then Mark Smith will say, well, no, he was a wind deity or a a, a storm deity, and it's almost like you can find elements where there's polemics throughout the Bible. I mean, really, I think from a, a more reasonable explanation is is that the Hebrews are just activating polemics against the pagan deities, and so they're using a language that could reflect a solar deity or language that could reflect a storm deity like Baal. But they're not really saying those things. It's just implicit polemics they're constantly using. And I think that's why liberal scholars wrestle with trying to identify what element Yahweh was originally identified with, because I would argue he really never was, and that these are just polemics that have been misunderstood. Yeah, and when you think about it, I mean, when you think about the Israelite situation and what they had to to deal with and what the prophets had to deal with, it would make sense. I mean, they were going after idols all the time. It would make sense to like take the attributes of those idols and attribute them to Yahweh to kind of get the Israelites to come back. Oh, you want a God that rides the clouds? Well, why, why go to Baal when Yahweh is so superior? Oh, you want a God who tramples on the, 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 the sea monsters? Oh, why go to, why worship Marduk? Yahweh can do it. Right, exactly. So, I mean, you know, the whole trying to keep the Israelites from going to – I mean, they went to idolatry like it was a, a nicotine – like a cocaine addiction. They just couldn't stay away from false gods. Exactly. Um, yeah, but anyway, anyway uh, moving on uh, to uh, Craig's objections, uh, he goes on in, to, in his podcast to say, quote, Walton interprets Genesis 1 as involving not God's creating plants and dry land and the sun and the stars and the moon and sea monsters and animals and man or as organisms or concrete entities. Rather, what Genesis 1 is about is simply specifying the functions that these things will fulfill. Now, certainly you do have a specification of functions in day four where it says, let the lights in the heavens serve to mark days and times and seasons and years. Their function is specified, but we shouldn't think that the specification of functions is mutually exclusive with material origins of these things. Typically, God would create with, with a function so that these things aren't mutually exclusive with each other. And yet, Walton is very adamant on interpreting Genesis 1 as being exclusively about the specification of functions so that he doesn't believe that Genesis 1 describes how God brings things into reality over these days, but rather how over these six days he specifies the functions that uh, the function that they will fulfill, end quote. It seems to me that this is is really Dr. Craig's primary objection to this view, and it's the objection that I run across more frequently than others. His objection is just basically like that like that little girl in the meme, why not both? Right, right, and this is what I've gotten from some young earth creationists that replied to my video on Genesis 1, and the obvious answer is, well, obviously Walton doesn't deny that it could be both. He says that multiple times in his books. He just notes, because it's not necessary we don't have to posit it. It's like, for example, if I said, I created a safe environment for my family. Okay, that could mean I'm a carpenter. It could mean that I've also built the house that we live in. But obviously me just saying, I've created a safe environment for my family, it doesn't mean I have to necessarily include the idea that I'm a carpenter. It could just mean I've established certain boundaries and I've made parameters and I, you know, I've sort of just specified functions to certain things or you know, I've put things in place. I've organized things. So you won't deny it could be there, but that's not necessary. And that's obviously 
not the intent of Genesis 1. And yeah, there are, he's right, there are functions that are specified in day 4, but I could see them in day 5. I see them there on day 1, day 2, and day 3. The only day that's not so explicit is day uh, is the, when it talks about creating the land animals on day 6. But then you see it again with the creation of humans, specifically giving them the Imago Dei. But, but I think when it comes to the land animals, it's been specified so much at the point, the author is just saying, okay, let's move on to the more important point here. But yeah, it, it's, I would say, for example, the, the light is given the function to be day. The darkness is given the function to be night. D.A. Uh, uh, Kleins notes the firmament is in relation to its function. The dry earth is to function as land and to sprout forth vegetation. The, the waters are to function as seas. The, um, so, I mean, you can see all sorts of functions in and out throughout the whole thing. I don't think it's just on day four. Right. And, and also, uh, it seems like Walton is saying that, you know, if you just look at bara and Asa and the way that they're used, it doesn't have to refer to material creation. It could just refer merely to functional creation. And just based on the word usage alone, it, it could be purely functional material with a function or just material and you'd have to look at the context to know uh how it's being used right and there was one critic who attacked walton and said well asa when it refers to an object is always about material uh manufacturing or material creation or it's not about specifying a function and that's just not true asa shows up like over i think six thousand times in the entire hebrew bible but like first samuel twelve six. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witnessed who Asa pointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up by the land of Egypt. So there we see Asa referring to, you know, two people, an object right there, and it's about appointing. So I think this idea that, you know, it's got to be material manufacturing is just not necessarily the case. And again, as Walton does not, de Walton does not deny that it could be, but it's not necessarily in the text and it's not the aim of the text. So why include it when it's not necessary? Yeah, uh, but uh, I think Walton does he does um and I think this is where I think this is why Craig gets confused. I think Walton's argument is basically yeah, theoretically it could be both, but there are some problems uh taking it that way. And he points out like uh the the, the firmament on day 2 if you insist that it's uh, material creation, then you have to say that God created a a, a material dome. That's obviously right. not the case, but you you get out of that if you if you see this as as purely functional, then the firmament is just an incidental detail, and also the fact that light and darkness are not material things on day one and day four. So if you insist that it's material creation, I mean you know they are material in our thinking as uh, modern twenty first century Westerners who have four hundred years of scientific advance, but you know from an ancient Near Eastern perspective, it. Uh, light, sun, moon, and stars, light, that, that was immaterial to them. So n if you insist material creation is going on, no material is act no material creation is actually occurring on days one and four, uh, which is pretty odd if it's supposed to be a material creation account. So he does like kind of make an argument for for why it's it's better to see it as function only. And I think that's why Dr. Craig says that Walton is adamant that it has to be uh, – function only yeah and i also would remind everyone that uh, one of the arguments i remember like cabane the christian uh, argued against walton's view was like it just seems obvious that when you read it it's about material creation uh newsflash it wasn't written in english guys it was written in hebrew 
And Hebrew is a verb-dominated language. Our language is more noun-dominated. We identify the subjects and the objects of, a, of a, a sentence first, whereas in Hebrew, you identify the verb first. And so you have to remember that it's more of a verbal structure. It's going to be more about processes and functions than it is going to be about objects. And so when people say, well, it just seems like it's obviously about material creation. Yeah, maybe in your language, but that's not how it was written. Yeah, but right. And that that's that's very important. And throughout my podcast and blog series on Genesis, that's something I kept pounding into the audience's heads. Like we got to read it the way the ancient Near Eastern mindset would. We, we got to stop thinking like scientifically informed 21st century Americans and we got to think like Hebrews and Hebrews. They didn't see the sun as a material thing. They didn't see the stars as a material thing. And they weren't even that, you know, if you look at all of their creation texts and you show some of them on your Genesis one video, they weren't, they, they weren't, they seemed to be more concerned with why their God created everything than with how and when everything came into being. It was just function. Right. And I would remind people that Walton didn't just pull this out of nowhere. He did build on other scholars. Like one he mentions is Gene Botero. So over the summer, I actually read some of Gene Botero books. And in his book on Mesopotamia, Writings, Reasoning, and the Gods, page, oh, what page is it? Page 97. He says, he notes basically that, you know, uh, they believe that something, I was just quote directly, they said they believe that this to such the extent that their eyes to receive a name and to exist was one and the same. So Patero says on page 97 that if you name something, that meant you brought it into existence. But naming something is not a material act. So this is why the Enuma Elish opens with, well, the gods were not, net, not yet named yet. It doesn't care about the material creation. It wants to specify when they were given their names so that they could start, start functioning as gods. So Walton actually has been building on other scholars like Gene Patero or J. Richard Middleton. He didn't just make this stuff up. Yeah, I noticed that in my in my readings of Walton, like he he cites other people, but a lot of people they just they just act like this is just uh, you know 100% original to Walton. And and I think some uh, I think the entire thesis and its final completed form might be, but like you know, if, you, if to use analogy an analogy of the puzzle, it's like the he didn't get he didn't make the puzzle pieces himself. He got like Oh, this is like this has a temple aspect to it, and uh, you know, oh, they they cared more about functions and stuff like that. He like he got it from other, not just his own right. studies, but other studies. So he like put the pieces together to make this this whole view. Right. So Dr. Craig goes on to say, "Quote: Walton looks at the the use of the word bara in Hebrew for create." And Walton gives about 50 examples of how bara is used in the Old Testament and claims on this basis that bara does not refer to the creation of material objects. Well, I would just invite our listeners to look at the list, and I think that they will find, as I did, that most of them refer to the creation of material objects. Almost all of them talk about material objects. There are some that don't, for example, that God creates the North and the South is not a material object, end quote. Uh, as I said in last week's podcast episode, I acknowledged in my response that many examples of bra are actually either ambiguous or they they could refer to material creation. But since there are a dozen examples in which bara cannot mean material creation, 
that leaves open the possibility that perhaps it's not talking about material creation in Genesis 1. And whether Genesis 1 uses it in a non-material way will depend on an examination of the text of Genesis itself, especially in light of the ancient Near Eastern understanding of things like light, not a material thing in their thinking, the sky, it was indeed a material thing in their thinking, which puts the material originist in an awkward position, the sun, moon, and stars on day four, not material in the A&E mindset, and so on. Uh, and when you look at the text of Genesis through ancient eyes, at best, you could support material creation for the third, fifth, and sixth days, which is only half of the entire account. And only then if you presuppose that Genesis 1 is about material origins. Would you agree with my response, and, and what, if anything, would you like to add? Oh, I mean, there's so much I could add, but I'll be I'll try to be brief. But the one the one problem is, is that he's assuming it's about material creation. Walton says in his book, there are times it could Barack could be referring to material creation. He never denies that. He just points out there are times Barack has used it necessarily and explicitly cannot mean material creation. So his point is, okay, if it never explicitly means material creation and there are times it explicitly cannot mean material creation. You, you can't say that it, it is about material creation because it seems like it's leaning far more towards the side where it's not even about material creation. The only times you can use it for material creation is when it, the text is a little ambiguous. Like Genesis 5, he brings up uh, I created male and female, and he notes that the verse – Walton notes that the verse is actually more about assigning roles of male and female. If you look at it and read it in the Hebrew, he draws attention to Isaiah 65, 18. I barrage Jerusalem to be a place of happiness. Okay, obviously it's about God assigning Jerusalem the role of being a place of happiness. Isaiah 43.1, did I not barah you, O Jacob? Okay, obviously we know where babies came from. Okay, Jacob was born through his parents. God did not poof him into existence ex nihilo. It's about God uh, assigning specific roles to Jacob and making him into Israel. That's what the entire chapter is about. So Walton acknowledges, again, Barah could be about material creation in Genesis 1. It's just not necessarily – it just – Barah never necessarily means that, and you have to acknowledge what Walton is saying and what he's making. It's a probabilistic argument, not a necessary argument. Right. Uh, what are some other examples? You named a few. You named Isaiah 43.1 um, and a, a couple of others where it cannot refer to material creation. What are some of the other ones that just you can't – you have to interpret in a non-material way? I mean, like Psalm 51, I believe it's 10. It's like, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Okay, obviously, no, no one is asking that God creates a new pump, a blood pumper, ex nihilo here. It's obviously about God. Uh, the, the psalmist is asking God to assign new functions to his heart, to give it a new calling or a new election point. I mean, so, I mean, there are a lot of examples like that throughout the text, but those are some of my favorite ones. Isaiah 43 verse 1, uh, Psalm 51.10, and Isaiah 65.18, and then, of course, Walton's uh, um, commentary on when it's used in Genesis 5 to refer to the creation of male and female. Yeah, uh, so, yeah, I mean, the whole heart thing there, uh, um, Walton points out that uh, in their thinking, they, when they referred to the heart, they did mean the blood pump, but they, but in this text, it, it David wasn't asking God to create a new blood pump in him, you know, sort of like making him like like the Time Lords on the Doctor Who science fiction TV show. They had two hearts. 
uh, it was, you know, make me a better person, kind of sanctify me, make uh, make me the kind of person who doesn't uh, sleep with other men's wives and then have the husbands killed <laughs> sort of thing. Right. So, yeah, that's the biggest problem, I think, with the whole Barah thing is show me one time in the text it necessarily has to refer to material creation. It can't be done, and that's Walton's point. Yeah, and Walton, he, he, you know, besides giving arguments for why it's problematic, like, you know, day one and day four don't have material things in A&E thinking you're stuck with saying God uh, material created a dome and, and some other problems, some problems that I would add, like, you know, since Genesis 1-1 is a, an independent clause, you all that means this material cre- creation account already starts with C. Where did the C come from? But he mm-hmm. he also – he starts out with just saying, you know, I've argued the point that this is an over, a primarily functional-oriented view, and if you continue to insist that it is – I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have the quote pulled up – uh, but he says, if you insist that it's it's material and function, well, I've gave I've given an argument for the functional focus. You need to give an argument for a material focus. Do you think that this is uh, a fair thing to do to the material creationist to say, uh, give don't just assume the material position is right, but give an argument, an exegetical argument for it? Yeah, and especially with regards to when people say bara means creation ex nihilo. It obviously it can't mean that they didn't have that even that concept back then, and so yet you hear theologians say that all the time. Ah, Barah refers to creation ex nihilo. Well, you got to show an argument that it actually does mean that because it's used several times to obviously not mean that. Right. Um. And well, one of the one of the um I don't know if I have it written down here, but one of the uh, objections that Craig brought up to me is that he he thinks that. Me and you and John Walton that that we we kind of uh, when we speak of material creation we're presupposing that it is creation next nihilo and Craig says I don't uh, he 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 doesn't think that uh, creation next nihilo is what bara means in all of it, it uh, mm-hmm. like in the case of the fish and animals uh, he thinks it's create creatia ex materia creation out of pre-existing materials and so we're we're making uh we're make you know we're equivocating here or maybe making a false dichotomy when we're arguing against the text being create creatio ex nihilo when material creation could fall in either the ex nihilo or ex materia category correct yes so uh what would you think the way i responded is I thought, okay, yeah, I think we need to be more careful in saying, no, we're not just arguing against ex nihilo uh, uh, material creation, but we're we're talking about material creation in general, ex materia or ex nihilo, and you know there there are some problems with that view. Right. Yeah, I I agree with what you what you basically said. Okay. Um, now that his next objection, at around ten, at around ten minutes in, Doctor Craig makes an argument that seems really bizarre to me. He says, "Quote: 
So when it says that God created the mountains or the stars or the heavens and the earth, it's those terms referring to those concrete objects that show its material creation, not the verb. And in Genesis 1, the verb is used over and over again to refer to material objects, end quote. Dr. Craig seems to think that if the, if the verb bara refers to a material object, then material creation must be what the text is talking about. So, for example, if the, verb sa- if the verse says, God created rocks, then since rocks are material objects, then that means – that has to mean material creation, not just functional creation. I, I listened to his podcast uh, more than once because I really wanted to make sure I wasn't attacking a straw man here, but – Based on the way he words the argument, that sounds like what he's saying. Yeah, I kind of got the same thing, too, and it just doesn't make sense. I mean, especially going back to something like Isaiah 43, verse 1. It, just to read it, it says, But now thus says the Lord, He who barad you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. Okay, this is a, this is obviously barah the nation of Israel. I, did I not bara you, O Jacob? But it's not about material creation. It's about how God formed him and called Israel to be his special nation. So I don't know why Craig thinks that has to be the case in Genesis 1. That just doesn't simply follow. Yeah, and like, and, and even using like a modern analogy, um, like, like you said, I create a safe environment for my family. Well, the, the environment is material. You live in a material house on a material plot of land, but as you pointed out, that doesn't mean that you built th- that that you were a carpenter and you put the house together. It could just mean you assigned functions. You you know arranged all the furniture and you pay the power bill and all that stuff to make sure that it functions as a as a good environment. Even in English language, it, create doesn't always have to refer to material creation. Exactly, and it's that's why I, I kind of agree with Michael Heiser when he says we're all kind of basically means the same thing as create in English. I mean, he says kind of, but he also notes that we use create all the time to refer to things that are not material. Like I created a piece of artwork. Okay. So you obviously just rearrange colors on a canvas or, you know, I create a safe environment. I've, I've created a a happiness in my family. I mean, we use it all the time to not refer to it and they do barah the same way. And interestingly enough, it never necessarily barah specifically never necessarily refers to material creation. It could at times, but it never necessarily means that. Yeah, so I, I just found that like really bizarre. Like if the if the object of the verb is material, then it's material creation. That just that that just doesn't make any sense. It, well, it doesn't follow. It, it doesn't logic. Yeah, it, it. I mean, it could, but yeah, it's just it's a it's a weird argument. Um, now, near near the end of the first part of Doctor Craig's response to me, it was a two part episode. Harris and Sam, not Sam Harris, <laughs> Kevin Harris and and William Lane Craig talk about our belief that Genesis 1-1 should be a dependent clause. And here's what they say. I'm reading, reading from the transcript. Kevin Harris. Okay, one more quick thing. I've heard several young scholars, and Evan does as well, talk, uh, talk about that Genesis 1 should be interpreted differently than what we have traditionally interpreted. They think that it needs to say when God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, darkness was over the surface of the deep. 
I don't think that will ever happen because in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth is the way most translators translate it. But have you heard that? Dr. Craig, this is commonly discussed. Evans says we have good textual reasons to believe that Genesis 1-1, which remember says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, is not the beginning of matter, energy, space, and time. Rather, since Genesis 1-1 lacks the definite article, it should be translated when God created the heavens and the earth. This is a very poor argument. The word beginning, barashit, in the beginning doesn't need to have a definite article in order to represent an absolute beginning. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, you have similar constructions. So the lack of a definite article is insignificant here. Evan doesn't interact with, and perhaps is unaware of, the lecture I gave in Defender's uh, class where I explained on the basis of Klaus Westermann's magisterial commentary on Genesis 1, why, Gen why Genesis 1-1 is best taken to be a main clause and not a subordinate clause. As my colleague Paul Copan shows in our book, Creation Out of Nothing, the majority of scholars today take Genesis 1-1 to be a main clause. It is not a subordinate clause. It is appended or prefixed to the creation story by the author of Genesis as a way of declaring God's absolute transcendence and creation of the material order. So while this verse may not explicitly state out of nothing, I think that it is the implication of it. There is no pre-existing co-eternal matter alongside God out of which he makes the universe. In this, as I say, most Hebrew scholars and translators agree it's not a subordinate clause as Evan claims, end quote. Yeah, this is like... This is one of the arguments I really hammer in because it seems Craig is is arguing mostly from majority here. And I think he's right when it comes to Christian scholars. Uh, they do take it. But I think in terms of Jewish scholars, that's not the case. And the obvious thing to point out is if you look at a Hebrew a Masoretic text, the vowel points that the Hebrews have put there are not indicating of a definite article. So the Hebrews didn't understand this to, to be a definite article. Now, he's right. It doesn't necessarily need a definite article for it to be expressing in the beginning point. But just look at the evidence. I mean, starting with John Salhammer, he notes that the, the word beginning shows up plenty of times in the Bible to not refer to an absolute beginning point, but actually to refer to more of like a, uh, at a beginning duration period, like Job 8-7 or Jeremiah 21 or Jeremiah 28, 1. Uh, these refer to like a duration of times. Next, the paper Robert E. Robert Homestead uh, had wrote his dissertation on this, and he basically has looked at the Hebrew syntax and notes that you cannot even derive a definite beginning point from the syntax of Genesis 1, 1. It more or less refers to the dependent clause structure. Michael Heiser also makes this point as well. Same with Robert Alter, who's a great Jewish scholar, just came out with his translation recently. But for going back to Homestead, he notes that specifically there are plenty of times the same wording shows up in the Bible, and it doesn't refer to an absolute beginning point. And so, and finally, my final point I use is Ben Stanhope notes that if, if you look at how all the creation accounts open in the ancient Near East, they start with a dependent clause, followed by a circumstantial clause. And then the main clause shows up in like verse three. That's how Genesis two opens, starting in Genesis two four b. It starts with a dependent clause followed by a circumstantial clause, and then the main clause. 
okay, well, that's the way it is in the Enuma Elish, in Assyrian Carrefour, and the Atrahasis. That's probably the way it is in Genesis 1. Dependent clause, circumstantial clause, main clause. Main clause being God said, let there be light. So the evidence, I think, just is piled up against the whole definite article interpretation. Yeah, would you would you mind, like, reading, like, just, you know, re- not not the whole text, obviously, but just the the three clauses in Enuma Elish, Atrahasis, Assyrian Carrefour for us? Yeah, uh, yeah, no problem. Let's start first with Genesis 2, 4b. The dependent clause is, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush was on the field. So you see, the first is the dependent clause. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, dependent clause. Then you move to the circumstantial clause. When there was no bush on the field yet in the land, and no small plants of the field had yet sprung, for the Lord God had not caused yet to rain. And then you get past that all, and you move to the main clause. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust. So it's like kind of like a building up thing. Dependent clause, circumstantial clause, main clause. And we see the same thing in you know other places as well, like the Enumaelish and the Atrahasis as well. So I could pull those up here in a minute, but basically it's the same basic structure as what we get in those in those different creation accounts. Okay, so it's so this this your final point is kind of more like an inductive argument. Like since we see this so many other places, what are the odds that Genesis one takes a different route? Right. Right. It's like it's like if you're going it, to it's the same grammatical structure. It's like if you're going to start with a constitution, if you're going to write a constitution in today's world, you're going to follow basically the same structure. You're going to use articles and different aspects to sort of make your point. Well, likewise, if you're going to open a creation account in the ancient Near East, you're going to follow the same structure that people would expect to see. You're not going to come up with a brand new structure that's going to violate the basic rules grammatically of how you would write a creation account. And. Genesis 1 fits right in there. So if you want to see, like, for example, uh, the Enum Elish is a popular example. It says, when in the heights, or when in, when in the height, when on high, heaven was not named, and the earth beneath did not yet bear a name, dependent clause. Then you get the circumstantial clause. And the primeval Apsu, who begot them, and Chaos, and Tiamat, the mother of them both, their waters were mingled, were mingled together. And you get a little bit past that. And then you get to the main clause. Then were created the gods in the midst of the heavens. And so you get the same basic structure. The same thing shows up in the Atrahasis as well. Yeah, cool. Um, so in, in part two of this response to, uh, to my response to Walton, part two of, my, of this response to my response to Walton, Dr. Craig says, quote, Walton's view, you'll remember, is that Genesis 1 does not describe God bringing into existence these various objects and organisms over the course of the six-day creation week. Rather, he thinks, it is merely the specification of functions for the objects and organisms that had already been there for an indeterminate amount of time that already exist. And what I argue is that this view of Genesis 1 is enormously implausible because it would require us to take as literally false all of the statements of the primordial darkness, the primeval oceans, the emergence of dry land from the oceans, the earth's bringing forth vegetation and fruit trees, the water's bringing forth uh, sea creatures, the earth bringing forth animals, and God's making man. Evan says here that Craig is begging the question here in favor of material creation. Uh, and then he quotes me, if the text, se- if the text 
meant to say that days two, three, and five are about the material creation of these entities, then of course the functional interpretation would contradict the text, but that's the very issue that's being debated, and then that's the end of my quote. Uh, Craig goes on to say, I don't think I'm begging the question here. What I said is true. It would require us to regard these statements as literally false, literally false, that the earth brought forth this vegetation and the waters drained away and the dry land emerged, that God put the sun, moon, and stars in the sky. These are all literally false statements. They have to be reinterpreted in a sort of functional way. And it seems to me that that is enormously implausible. So I'm not begging the question here. I'm just saying that that's not the tech, the way the text reads, end quote. How would you respond to that? Uh, I mean, I, I think, again, he is looking at the English and going, well, it seems like this is about material creation. So it is. And I don't think that's necessarily what the Hebrew is actually saying. You could take a case in point like where God says, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. We read that and we go, well, it's obviously about God making humans. But, you know, Michael Heiser writes in his book, uh, The Unseen Realm, this is more verb dominated. It's more or less saying God is saying, let man image us. Let let man image God. It's Again, it's a verb dominated thing. And so Michael Heiser points out it's more about God electing humanity to be the image of God, not a special creation point. And so I think you see that in, in other places throughout the text, that if we just start trying to read it with the Hebrew, if we try to understand it as the Hebrew would intend, if we try to understand it as a cultural context, it wouldn't necessarily say those types of things. This is why it's about specifying certain functions, how they're going to function in human civilization. The earth is going to sprout forth vegetation. In other words, the earth is going to function to give humans you know, their vegetation that they need. And so I don't I – don't, again, I think Craig is just sort of arguing from a plain reading of the text, which I don't think is fair because it wasn't written in English. Yeah, and also I think that – you know the 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 reasons you know like the cultural context you know there there are i think oh what was it is was it the egyptian instruction of merikari that is just the most blatant of all the functionally oriented texts it says uh, the god made this for that and this for that he made this reason for this and and this and that and you have all these different creation texts where if you really if if you know what you're looking for if you're not presupposing that creation is material creation you see that they were more concerned with why and for what reason all of these things existed uh and for all these ancient near eastern texts and then you see when you look at genesis 1 through ancient through ancient near eastern eyes you see that the the days were primarily concerned with functions especially day four i mean it's that's very explicit god created the sun moon and stars to to mark seasons days and years and um, and so, you know, one of my friends, uh, objected, you know, I don't, Walton's view is kind of plausible, but I just can't make sense of day three. I mean, obviously plant growth is, is being mentioned there. And as I thought about that, I thought, yeah, it, it really is. But is God, is the text saying that God created the first trees, the, the first fruit trees that ever existed on the planet, or is God saying Okay, fruit trees, your job is to bear fruit, and okay, land, your job is to produce vegetation. Okay, seas, your job is to have ocean life swarm in you, and, and so on. Right. You know, the, yeah. you know so you, I mean, 
day three could be read as God saying, you know, let there be the very first uh, trees that ever existed uh, if you just looked at day three in isolation. But, like, when you look at, at day three and day five in the context of the rest of Genesis 1 and also all of these other ancient Near Eastern creation myths, uh, you, you look at the way Bara and Asa can be used and, and, and all these sorts of different things – then you know my the reading I just proposed becomes a lot more plausible, wouldn't you say? Right, and again, building on Gene Batero, Gene Batero notes that it's that they thought that if you gave something a name, it was the same as bringing it into existence. So they weren't focused on material creation. That what was more important to them was naming something, and when you name something, then it came into existence. Yeah, right. Uh, so. Craig goes on to say, uh, quote, Evan says, I don't see what the issue is supposed to be if we are talking about a purely functional creation. If someone jumped into a time machine and traveled to the creation week, that, that he'd see anything spectacular happening on the planet. That's exactly my point. On Walton's view, if you hopped into your time machine and traveled back to the creation week, however long that was, you wouldn't see anything coming into existence. The dinosaurs, man, the sun and stars, they're all they're all there just fine, and nothing spectacular would be happening. Now, the difference between Evan and me is that he's willing to bite the bullet and say that's plausible. This is what Genesis 1 means, that that, that is just an enormously plausible reading of Genesis 1, end quote. As I said in my blog post and uh, my blog response and in my podcast response to this episode we're talking about, I don't see that there is a bullet to bite, do you? No, I mean, it's like it seems like it's just appealing to emotion or appealing to emotion. I want to see something spectacular. Well, that doesn't mean you get to. <laughs> I mean, just just because the text is not what you would want it to be, that that's not an ar I don't see how that's even an argument. Of course. You wouldn't see anything spectacular because that's not really what the text is saying. Why does that matter? Yeah. And also in my in my blog and podcast response, I I pointed out that there are other things that happened, uh, you know, in pre-human history that we wouldn't expect to see either, like the fall of Satan. I mean, does Satan does does Dr. Craig believe that if he got in a time machine and went back to the time that Satan and a third of all the angels fell from heaven, that he would like see them all falling like a meteor shower? No, of course right. not. They're, they're immaterial beings. Uh, you know, the angels cheering when God laid the foundations of the earth. Would a time traveler say, "Okay, we need to get back in the time travel in the time machine"? These noisy angels are getting on my nerves. I mean, you know, God does a lot of things in the un the unseen realm. That are not discernible to the human senses. I just I don't really see why this bothers Craig so much. Oh, exactly. And I thought the way you put that was perfect. It doesn't, and it just is. It's almost like it's appealing to emotion. Like, who really cares if you don't get to see anything spectacular? Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, the only the only way you would see something is if it was material creation. I mean, if you like, and, and it's particularly the young Earth creationist view, not like the Hugh Rossian view. If you went mm -hmm. back in time on the Hugh Rossian view, you just you might be sitting there, uh, and you might have to wait a while before some ducks poof into being on the water. But <laughs> right, and I think that Craig's view is more similar to that because he's not a young Earth creationist. Yeah. Um. So okay, finally, uh, we on more than one occasion, 
in both the first and second parts of this response to my response to his critique of Walton, he emphasized just how little support this interpretation of Genesis has among Old Testament scholars. And you've already touched <sighs> upon this point, uh, like in like several times. Uh, the way I want, part of me just wants to say, who cares? Who cares? <laughs> I mean, we we both know that something can uh, something isn't false just because a minority of scholars hold to it, and something isn't something isn't true just because majority holds to it uh you know to say that it is, is the, to commit the bandwagon fallacy uh but you know that and that but you know i i do f- kind of sense that it is you know not quite as prominent and that's what that's what motivated me to look at so many criticisms because i'm like i do think this is a, a minority view can it hold up scrutiny and i've looked at like nine or ten you know i, I don't know how many uh people who interact I, I can't keep count, but I looked at a lot, and they didn't really defeat his view. But you know, r- regardless, no. you know how, how many people, how many, how you know, is it really as a minority view as uh, Walton's detractors try to make it out to be? And you know, what other prominent scholars really hold to this functional origins temple inauguration view? Well, I mean, I asked Walton that one time actually in an email. Uh, he notes, you know, there, there are scholars that get behind the idea, like J. Richard Middleton. I, I mentioned uh, D.A. Kleins before. Uh, there's also Trevor Longman, he noted as well. But, I mean, you could go and you could find support. Like on BioLogos, uh, David Bueller uh, wrote uh, an article, Creation in the Temple Where God Rests. So he wrote an article in defense of the, uh, Walton's view. Uh, same uh, with um, the Gospel Coalition. Trevin Wax wrote a, an article defending uh, some of Walton's proposals, like Rethinking Genesis 1, a new proposal. So... There are some scholars that do defend this view. I, did I mention J. Harvey Walton? John Walton's son is now publishing, and he, you know, he's in the same camp as Walton as well. So there are some scholars that defend this view. Uh, is it a majority? I don't know. There's not been any surveys done. I, I the funny thing is, the more I, I found a lot of, at least in Tucson, I've come across a lot of pastors who know of Walton and have def- told me that they really enjoyed his books and they were convinced by them. But I don't know of any actual surveys. I don't know if we can really say it's like a fringe, tiny view. It might be. But, I mean, who really cares? Let's focus on the arguments. And as you said, a lot of the replies to Walton were not that good, and they weren't that well thought out. And they just sort of uh, you know, attacked a little here and there, but they didn't really go that in depth. And, again, as I said, Craig's response in his Defenders class when I watched it the first time, I was, all, I was like, really? Like he's not really putting a lot of effort into this, and it's not that really good. He's not really – He's misunderstanding what Walton says here or there, and it's so it's it's unfortunate. But the arguments are pretty solid, and that's what we need to focus on. And again, I said the three best ways to defend Walton's view, or, or three arguments Walton doesn't use. One is arguing for the dependent clause nature of Genesis one, noting the correlations in Jeremiah four, and noting the implicit polemics. So if that's the case, I think the argument is pretty strong. And my favorite argument is, of course, is the one by finding the correlations in Jeremiah four. Yeah. Um... Before I, I want to ask you about the that Jeremiah four argument, but, but as far as the, def, the the dependent clause, that reminded me that you know when you do take it as a dependent clause, uh, you see that the the creation account starts off with there being nothing but sea, and that's very similar to the founding of Eridu and a lot of other ancient Near Eastern creation texts. And what right. I learned, especially from Michael Heiser's work, is that 
they saw the sea as a crazy place that where all sorts of sea monsters lived. It was a symbol of chaos. They even had some gods and goddesses that were, you know, sort of in charge of the sea and they represented chaos like Tiamat. Well, here's here's what I'm thinking. If they saw the sea as a symbol of chaos or even the source of chaos or where ca- uh, creatures of chaos dwell, then what does that imply? That implies that in these creation texts, like Enuma Elish, the founding of Eridu, Genesis, when they destroy Tiamat, they destroy Leviathan, they um, – it, it's – it's subduing chaos, and that's just another way of saying introducing order to non-order or function to that which has no function, i.e. the world. So that I think that in understanding the way that they understood the sea and understanding that Genesis 1 begins with the sea, you know, the, the earth was uh, formless and void, darkness was over the surface of the deep, you know, it's a, it's a water world. There's nothing but the sea. God ha- There's chaos, and God has to – to do something about it, I think that's a really powerful argument for the functional origin view. Right, and I completely agree with you. And I think, as I mentioned before, one of my favorite arguments is to look at Jeremiah 4. Starting in verse 23, it says, I looked at, on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void, tohu and bohu. And the heavens, they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking. And the, all the hills moved to and fro. And I looked, and behold, there was no man. And all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all the cities were laid in ruin. Okay, this is about – this is Jeremiah prophesizing over Judea and saying, look, if you don't shape up, you're going to end up like the northern kingdom of Israel. And then he describes the northern kingdom of Israel here. There's no light. It's formless and void. There's no man. There's no birds of the air. Sound familiar? It sounds like Genesis 1 in reverse. But obviously we don't think space-time opened up and the northern kingdom of Israel was sucked out of existence. It just went from a functioning a functioning kingdom to a non-functioning kingdom, and now it has no light because of that. And so if you read very conservative scholars like Young Earth Creationists like John MacArthur, they wrestle with this passage because he acknowledges – even he acknowledges there are correlations in here to, to Genesis 1 – and it's obviously about the destruction of the northern kingdom, but it's not about material dis- annihilation. So that would imply if the reverse of what happened in Jeremiah 4 is happening in Genesis 1, it's not about material creation. It's about God taking a functionless cosmos and making it function. Just like in Jeremiah 4, a functioning kingdom becomes a non-functioning kingdom. Yeah, I like the way you put that. Um, if Jeremiah 4 is not about material annihilation – then why think that Genesis one using the exact same language is about material creation? You know, I, I think that that was very well put. Yeah, and I remember one time I heard a young Earth creationist respond to me, the uh, ch- YouTube channel Standing for Truth. It was such a bad response. I laughed so much. I sent it to other people to watch. I'm like, you got to see how bad this is. But he responded to this Jeremiah four passage, and he's like, well, this is obviously a prophecy about end times. And I'm like, dude, if you just would have read the next verse. Because verse 27 says, for thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolate, yet I will not make a full end. It's not about the end times. It's, it, God says it right there in the next verse. So, I mean, yeah. even, that's why John MacArthur can't say that, because it's not. And so it's, this is not about end times. This is about yeah. the end the of the Babylonian exile, right? Right. It's a prophecy concerning, saying that will happen to you, just like what happened to the northern kingdom. 
Okay, yeah. Well, this we we could go on and on about this, uh, but thank you for coming coming on. And by the way, tell uh, you you make you make some really really good really high quality YouTube videos, uh, and they just they just give me a like a cinematic experience, and they're very informative and they're very well researched. Tell our listeners where they can go to uh, watch your videos. Yeah, just go to my YouTube channel, uh, Inspiring Philosophy. I got a whole series up on Genesis 1 through 5 right now. And so I just did a video on the ages of the patriarchs and argued that they're meant to be symbolic. I got video, So I did the whole series goes up from Genesis 1 to 6. I'm going to go all the way up to 11. But I also have videos arguing for uh, arguments for God's existence from things like quantum mechanics, cosmology. I have series defending the Trinity the resurrection of the New Testament. Uh, this winter, I'm going to do a series on monotheism, and I'm going to argue the Bible was never polytheistic, that the biblical authors were never polytheist. There was never any redactions, changes made to sort of hide ancient polytheism. And so I'll do some videos on that as well. And I, so I got a lot of stuff on there. Oh, that sounds interesting. Is that is that going to be uh, – is, is, are you going to get into some like divine council stuff in that? Yeah, I'm going to talk about the divine council in the first part. Uh, and in the second part, I'm going to – it's going to be called Israel's Revolutionary Monotheism, and I'm going to issue a good 20 or so facts that are in the biblical text, which argue that this the, this canon could not have evolved from polytheism, that there are too many like uh, anomalies in the biblical text that argue that it had to start out as monotheistic and just retain monotheism throughout, that it was not an evolution away from polytheism. So I'll do three videos total on it, on that. First, I'll argue that they're against the polytheistic interpretation. Then I'll argue in two videos for a monotheistic understanding. Well, I'm looking forward to it. It sounds really cool. I haven't seen all of your videos yet. I've seen most of them. I think I, I think the only ones I haven't seen are the one on the hiddenness of God, the the origin of the universe and your resurrection series. I think that those are, and also the Genesis five video. Those are like the only ones I haven't seen yet. So thank you for coming on. Um, and by the way, Cerebral Faith listeners, um, if you want to support me and if you want to support Inspiring Philosophy, we both have Patreon pages. Mine is uh, patreon.com slash Cerebral Faith. His is, I think, patreon.com slash Inspiring Philosophy. Yes. Uh, you could probably, yeah. So, you know, you can support us and you're, you know, you're going to, Patreon is not, I don't think a lot of people understand Patreon. Patreon is not just a donation page. It's you get a lot of good things in result uh, in return. You get early access. You get exclusive um, patron exclusives. Uh, if you're a twenty dollar patron of Cerebral Faith, you get audio exclusive audiobook editions uh, to the books I've written. You can't get them anywhere else. Can't get them on Audible or Christian Audio. And so you're not just making a donation. You're you're actually getting some some things in return for helping to support our ministries. So, you know, we, we really, we really could use your help. Um, thank you for listening. I will see you next time. God bless. Peace out.